Why, hello there, and welcome back to Wrong Opinions Only with your hosts, Justin and Kayla. And you are back for a movie review week, Kayla, and we are into courtroom movies. Yes, you know, I was looking through the list of, like, courtroom movies, what have I seen, what haven't I... I was really surprised, one, how many there were, and two, how many there were at a certain period of time, I guess, when you're kind of comparing to what's been coming out lately, like even in the past few years, it's like, what courtroom-centered movies have been coming out? I mean, a lot of the highlights are like 80s, 90s, you know? What'd you think? Yeah, I completely agree. It seems like there's these periods of types of TV shows and movies that kind of, uh, you know, flow, ebb and flow throughout time, and there was definitely a period of time where courtroom TV shows and movies were like the real hot thing. Then they went off a little bit, then they kind of come back. But when I was looking through the list of movies to potentially give you or movies I've seen myself, I realized that I have not seen nearly as many as I thought. There was like a handful. I'm like, oh, I really love that movie. Oh, I'll give that one to Kayla. And then you've seen it. And then once I started digging deeper into the list, I was like, oh, you know, I never even... I don't even know that what that is or that that existed. So clearly some of that just went right past me without me even realizing. You know, honestly, I feel like we grew up at an age of courtroom TV. So I feel like that was very much present in like daytime television or like after school TV where it was just always on. If you know your parent was watching it or if you just caught it flipping through channels movies, I feel like maybe not so much, maybe just because of our age, you know, when we were getting into them, they had already kind of passed. So like TV show wise, I was, I was crushing judge Judy. I mean, I was, I know Ally McBeal, Ally McBeal, the practice, judge Mathis. I mean, I was, I was all over that stuff. And I know this is hard to believe since, you know, you knew me since kindergarten, but I was a bit of a nerd. And I remember middle school watching uh, court TV in the art room with my teacher. Do you remember our art teacher in middle school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We used to, I used to hang out court with him TV. watching court TV. That, that was, uh, he, he was an entertaining chef. He, he really he was. was. Our teachers usually are. Shout out to you, Allie. Yeah. And I think uh, during the time growing up and we, we kind of had that weird time where it was like, Nick at Night would be some random old TV shows and stuff. So I used to watch The Practice, Ally McBeal. Uh, more recently, like, I was a fan of Suits. I really like that. And, like, Franklin and Bash, more of a comedic tilt to it. But I was never really into the, the kind of uh, Law and Order type shows, the ones that are much more, like, episodic, like, and serious. I needed a little bit more to it, you know? Yeah, I used to watch CSI. Like, in the beginning of CSI, it used to have, like, the murder itself or, like, how they found the body. I don't know what this says about me, but I used to love that part of it and then completely tuned out for the actual crime-solving part of it. I just wanted to see, like, people going at a club and going to the bathroom and then just seeing someone dead on the ground, you know? Loved it. Oh, wow. That's just, that lines up with the things you like, Check, Kayla. Checks just, out, uh, right? Despair right? and sadness. And Yeah, I, I want to... Yeah, I want to reach the height of it, and then I just want to, you know, flip the channel to something else. And we had all of the history of movies to our disposal to pick what to assign the other person, and we really just racked our brains. We went all the way back in time, all the way into the future. What's out there now? And we both landed on the year 1996. 
<laughs> and both very similar themed, honestly. So just ridiculous. You know, 96, what a year. We were both six, depending on what month. And, you know, I guess it was a year for great crime movies because we gave each other, you know, the same film with, like you said, similar themes. Speaking of which, let's go right into the movies that we assigned each other so we can let the people know. So you assigned me Primal Fear, and that's available on Paramount+. Plus. And then I assign you Sleepers, which is available on HBO Max. So why don't you tell me why you picked Primal Fear of all the movies? So we went back and forth a little bit on what movies each of us have seen. And once you said you haven't seen Primal Fear, I pretty much knew that was going to be the movie. It was either that or My Cousin Vinny. But it's a loaded cast. It's Richard Gere, Laura Linney. You got early Edward Norton. It's Francis McDormand's in it. And it's memorable because the ending is is a bit of a twist. And I just that's always stuck in my mind. So it also gave me a reason to rewatch it to kind of build that suspense up to see if it's everything that I remembered it was. And I'm glad I did because I rewatched it and thoroughly enjoyed myself. You know, I didn't rewatch Sleepers for this, but I, I hadn't seen it not too long ago. So it was kind of fresh in my mind. I've seen Sleepers dozens of times i feel like it's one of those movies my mom sat me down to watch and i loved it and i feel like i've seen it every couple years i'll watch it enjoy it and i just think it's dark it's it has some interesting uh you know you got brad pitt you got some just a cool dynamic of a you know back in time setting with kids and then kind of what's happening as adults and then how the law kind of helps and hurts them and shape them and and what ends up happening so i i i too was looking for something more modern maybe for you and then i was just like damn but i love this movie i watched it all the time so it just stuck out to me and then when i saw what was gonna be in primal fear i go oh wow we catholicism man what a crime center in the 90s i suppose so that was pretty funny and both movies have loaded cast and shameful admission potentially on my part i've never even heard of sleepers or knew what it was before you assigned it to me i was like what is this movie then i looked at the cast list and i was like oh we got de niro we got bacon we got Pitt, we got billy crude up this is this might be good and then it was two and a half hours and i was like oh geez and a long movie <laughs> which is funny because as soon as i saw the time for primal fear i was like for once justin gave me the longer movie and honestly i think they're the same runtime it's pretty funny Primal Fear is over two hours. Well, they're both over two hours, but Primal Fear is two hours and nine minutes. Sleepers is two hours and 27 minutes, Kayla. So 20 oh, minutes longer. Oh, whatever. And that 20 minutes could have been cut out, but we'll get into that later. We certainly will. We certainly will. So how about I start us off with my film, Primal Fear. All right, so Primal Fear came out, like we said, April 1996. It was directed by Gregory Hoblet, written by Steve Shagane and Ann Bitterman. Stars, like you said, Richard Gere, Laura Linney, who I love, uh, John Mahoney, Francis McDormand, Edward Norton in his first film. Box office gross and budget. So it had a budget of $30 million and had a, a box office gross of $102.6 million, which was really good. Rotten Tomatoes had the score 77%, pretty high. Um, and as far as awards, I mean, Edward Norton was nominated for Best Supporting Actor that year of the Academy Awards, and it won some kind of state, different awards, local like that, Critics' Choice, that type of thing. Some fun facts about this film. Okay, 
So Edward Norton won the part despite never being in a film before and not even having an agent. And he was friends with actress Connie Britton, who was his friend at the time, and called him and said, they're seeing people for this role and I have the spookiest feeling it's made for you. So what does that say about Edward Norton that someone was like, there's a great psychopath character and I think that you'd be great for it, you know? Um, Matt Damon also really wanted the part and I saw a long list of actors that were trying to go for it because I feel like once the script was read, they knew that this film would kind of break you out. But thank goodness, our great, great actor Matt Damon did not get it because that's what pushed him to make one of my favorite films, Goodwill Hunting, with Ben Affleck because he didn't get the part. And this this period of time, this mid to late 90s, it was all that group of male actors were going after every part together. We had the Affleck and we had, uh, we had Edward Norton. We had Matt Damon. We had the guy who played Robin and Batman and Robin, who I forget his name, Chris O'Donnell. I also learned it was Edward Norton's idea to stutter as Aaron. So he had some ad libs in this film, kind of like Richard Gere being surprised when he's pushing him against the wall as he kind of does this transition to Roy. That was ad libs. So he was generally like, I can't believe you're pushing me. Um, there were a couple other moments. So that was pretty cool on Edward Norton's part for this being his first film and him getting some It's key also points. ballsy. Ballsy as your first movie to start taking, uh, you know, choices like that as an actor, being like, oh, well, I'm just going to push uh, Richard Gere up against a wall. I'm sure that'll go over well with everybody. You know, knowing how Edward Norton is as an actor and some of his choices as he's acting and performances checks out, checks out. Not too surprising for him. Um, and then Edward Norton, you know, plays two other different characters that have multiple personality disorder, which of course is now called disassociative identity disorder. So of course we got to talk in nineties terms for this one. He was of course the character in fight club and then incredible Hulk. So look at that. He, he has the dual selves within. So this was hard to describe plot lies, but I'm going to try in my minute, uh, parameter. So we'll see what happens here. You tell me when I'm ready. All right, Kayla. Three, two, one, go. One day, a beloved archbishop is ambushed and murdered by an unseen figure. Inner Stamplis, an altar boy from Kentucky, is arrested after fleeing the scene covered in blood. Martin Vale is an asshole defense attorney who decides to represent him, and Jen is asked for a brief situation ship prosecution. They have this I hate you, I still want to fuck you energy about them. Throughout the trial, it's unsavory means of backstabbing, evidence stealing. They discover that the Archbishop was a sexual predator and forced Aaron, Aaron's girlfriend, another man to engage in sexual acts while he watched. Aaron suddenly becomes a violent person when confronted with this. Martin realizes he has split personality, one child stuttering, and another violent girl goes by Roy. He tries to get him in excuses and insane, but his case is shaky, so he gets him to turn the court and is declared not guilty. Roy's him standing in the end. Martin finds out Aaron was fake his disorder and that Roy's his true personality. Martin is just super sad. I feel like you missed a lot in there, but general uh, notes 36 seconds. Good job, Kayla. Nailed it. Just under. All right. First few thoughts. I enjoyed this film. I did. Um, I won't lie. I did know the surprise like twist at the end of the film beforehand. And that's only because I feel like one night on YouTube, you know, it's showing like best scenes and I caught it, but I had like no sense of the real plot of the movie. So I didn't have like, I guess the true total surprise at the end if I would have been surprised but if anything and it made me more aware of like when to watch moments where I felt like maybe his true self would have shined and it's funny because I brought it up in therapy um and she was like primal fear is a movie that they talk about in psychology like they show clips so when she was taking classes they would use primal fear 
in class to kind of probably learn how people lie maybe or the different parts in the film where he was giving himself up without the audience knowing maybe but a psychiatrist maybe could see those moments um so i thought that was pretty fun to kind of look at it with that viewpoint and in fact when they had the moment in the scene where he's before he attacks in the courtroom and of course, when he has his infamous speech at the end where the comps is like, you know, we were dancing like you, you knew you were throwing at me basically. And I saw it like in the moment before that kind of revealing and scene, I go, I, you saw him like, he's so focused on Martin, Richard Gere's character. And you see this little like quick smile where he's like, oh yeah, this is, you want me to come roaring this moment. Got it. And I, as soon as he was kind of making fun of it at the end in his monologue, I was like, I, yeah, he did. I, I go, this is where he's going to snap because he, he, he knew that's what he wanted to happen. I thought that was so interesting kind of in that moment to see, oh yeah, he thinks he's volleying to him and it's working. And Richard Gere has zero clue. The very 90s parts of this movie that was hard is like ch some of the chase scenes, some of the like, there were a lot of them, like more than I thought there would be. And usually that's because they're chasing like the guy who did it. This was all like, who's this guy in the apartment when they're trying to steal evidence? Who's this person leaving a package in a door? Like, I was just like, good God, we are just chasing people and it, it doesn't even matter in the plot. Um kind of the evidence gathering was a little kind of dull to me. Like I enjoyed when it was Richard Gere having his kind of will they, won't they, won't they energy with Laura Linney, you know, or him trying to figure out how can I get this guy to have a plea of insanity without doing it? Cause I've already said he's not guilty and it's hard to do mid trial. Like I enjoyed him having that dynamic with people. Him thinking, like, I lost the case, I'm going to win it. I'm lost, I'm going to win it. When it became, like, these weird scenes that were just so, like, you know, that I kind of checked out on a bit. So, equally in those moments, I think you could have totally cut it and just had Richard Gere kind of have this issue where he's this hotshot lawyer, he's arrogant, he's an asshole, he's taking this case not because it's the right thing or he thinks he's innocent, but because it's a high-profile high case. And I wanted to see, like that dynamic of him really going, you know what? I'm going to fight the, for the little guy in this film. Instead, it was kind of like, did he change in this film? What did you think about his evolve or maybe not evolving in this film? Like, did you, was there a change in him? Like, was he really trying to see the good in Aaron or was he just, you know, kind of deserved it? I, I think there was some evolving because I'm pretty sure the, the movie opens up with him telling somebody or maybe it was the reporter there you never ask if they did it because it doesn't matter if they did it or not i am just um working on their behalf and then he straight up asked roy slash aaron in the movie did you do it did you do it tell me the truth so he is it seems like he's kind of trying to deal with the conscious decision of am i actually helping a criminal or in his mind it's i'm justifying everything because i'm helping this kid get out of this so he didn't feel as bad when he's going after his former boss, the DA, where those types of moments, I think his previous self would not have resorted to. But since he actually believed this kid was innocent, he started to play a little more dirty than typical. That's an interesting take because I took it as like, no, like I didn't feel as bad for him in the end because I felt like when he was saying that it was because he was going to lose the case and fall on his face. And now there was this pressure of his ex being on the other side of the courtroom 
And he sends her the tape, even though he knows it's going to cause her to have a conflict. He finds like a perfect way for that film to be shown. He even knows admittedly that he put her in the danger zone of getting attacked just because it would help his case. Like there were just so many moments that I was like, and no point is he putting one Laura Linney who poor Laura Linney in this film. She's just getting screwed all over the place. And when every time Richard Gere was like, behind her like you want to dance i go you like no part of you is charming like i love richard gear pretty woman love it charming got it but this one I'm like no like he he screws her over the entire film and then he's just like even at the end kind of like maybe we could re kind of redo this and she's like what the fuck you monster like i felt bad for the criminal system that this guy was going to be free but i did not feel bad for richard gear yeah, you have to have that extra dynamic between him and the uh, prosecuting attorney, right? So, oh, they have a history. They screwed around a few times, but it was never anything super serious. And what's going on here? He took the money. She's doing the noble thing. It, it adds a little bit extra to the movie. But I just, I think Edward Norton's performance as Aaron is is top notch, especially for this being his first feature film. and kind of going back and forth between those roles. Like you said, on the rewatch, it's so kind of fun watching intently on, okay, you can kind of see the twitch in the eye. Like he's about to switch. He understands what's going on here or knowing Richard Gere is going to go up and like basically set up Laura Linney's character to get attacked. And nobody says anything. When he walks up and covers the mic and leans in is basically like, stop being a little baby bitch. And then walks away. The judge is just watching that like, oh, that's standard procedure. Go for it. No big deal. It's always so funny watching the like, I'll hold you in contempt or I'll find you. Like, I do kind of like, I'd like a fun judge. Like, I like a judge that either like doesn't give a shit and is corrupt. Or I like one that's just like, yeah, I can tell you're an asshole. And like, this isn't going to fly in the courtroom. Like, I enjoy that kind of dynamic between the lawyers and the judge a bit when shows show it or movies show it. Do you think he told after he found out, I guess it's attorney client privilege to an extent, right? But do you think he had a conversation with the uh, psychologist, Francis McDormand's character being like, you kind of screwed the pooch on this one. Like he just played us all this entire time. Good job. No, or do you think he's just like, no, I'm going to brush my hands. I'm out. No, I think he probably had a glass of scotch when he got home. I think he was really, this one made him kind of sit in his thoughts about how he failed quote unquote, because he fell for, I don't think the fail is him getting off, even though I'm sure he does it. He's not that much of an asshole. He wants a murderer to go free. But I think it's like, I feel like he'd more look at about his performance and how he got conned than actually like setting someone bad free. I feel like, no, I think he sits there and he's just thinking about how he got totally tricked and that he's usually the one to be on top of everyone. And he's the one that's conning people. And instead he got played crazy lengths. I mean, she's a neuro, well, she's like a neuroscientist. And so that was part of the reason why her statement was kind of like, they're like, we're not really listening to it or giving as, as much credence. And he just got played and Edward Norton. I'm this is controversial. I'm not a fight club fan. Not, I don't think it's a bad film. I just never like got into it. I know it, a lot of, a lot of guys love it. it. Just wasn't for me. American history X though. 
seen it a million times. I will see it a million times more. To me, that is the highest of high. Edward Norton's performance was just that's because that so is good. more like downtrodden and sad. You just like the movies that I mean, Fight Club's not a a, a big a joyful movie either, but. Not nearly as bad as American History X. I like happy I mean, movies sometimes, Justin. You know, sometimes I like a chuckle. Oh, yeah. Name one. We, we just most recently saw a movie that was a comedy in theater. So how about that? I enjoyed myself. Okay. Dungeons and Dragons. We saw it. We nerded out. Let's we do did, it. We did. We did. So, I mean, yeah. I, you know, this was a really good performance by Edward Norton, like you said. For this being his first film, I mean, I wish I could have you know, experience sometimes these older films in person because how people were just, could you believe that twist? Like, I know he got so many people watching that film because that turn when he admits, you know, something that he's supposed to always forget when he kind of turns into Roy in this like personality disorder. And he mentions something that he shouldn't remember. And he just does that slow clap, which was also improvised. And when he he goes, you know, oh, there was no Roy when Richard Gere says that. Like, there was no evil kind of violent self. And R- Edward Norton just laughs. And he's like, don't be, you know, he's like, I'm disappointing you. I don't mind telling you there never was an Aaron counselor. Like, there never was a good part of me. I was completely this violent, cruel person. And you completely didn't notice that this whole time i love a twist like that it was fun like for a courtroom drama where you're usually introduced to an innocent person uh green mile is also one of my favorites you're introduced to a good innocent person and you're just spending the whole time anxious like are they gonna get off is this gonna work and instead this was like a fun twist of like no actually the bad guy won that does happen in the real world and it was just i mean Edward norton being sinister i love it yeah, and it's that twist on the twist because the first twist is, oh, he just turned bad. Maybe he didn't realize what's going on. Nope, just kidding. He did, and he played everybody, including the audience, for 99% of this movie. One kind of nitpick I have goes along with yours on this movie, a little bit more on the discovery front. Like, we didn't really get much from Richard Gere's colleagues. Like, we had the uh, the one guy chasing down the guy who was trying to get rid of the tape. But what did the uh, the woman number two, what, what was she doing? She just got yelled at a few times and she sat in some rooms. Like, did she actually do anything of value? And she didn't realize what the uh, the carving on the chest was. Yeah, she was kind of useless. There are a few times there's some characters that I'm like, who is that again? Or what purpose are they serving? However, the great Captain Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine is in this movie, you know, when he's chasing down the evidence. And I loved it. He's so freaking funny in that show. So that was a delight seeing a younger him kind of in this film. Like, oh, I know that guy. Um, So that was great. It just allegedly. Yes. Yeah. Allegedly. You allegedly know that guy. I allegedly know him. It was. <laughs> that was a kind of a funny little thing they threw in throughout the movie when every time he gets asked a question, he just says allegedly at the wrong time and doesn't say allegedly when he's supposed to. I just like like little things like that with a character. And then when he gets put on the stand, it's like, did you go to this location? Allegedly. No, it's literally a yes or no question. What are you talking about? And he looks over at Richard Gere like, uh, what do I say here? Honestly, the courtroom scenes were some of my favorite too, that dynamic. Um, and then just Richard Gere and Edward Norton were so good together. Like I love their chemistry. I wish they were in. I wish honestly Richard Gere is just really good at playing like asshole characters that you kind of like. And Honestly, I feel like there's just so many mo- more movies he could be in right now that would be so good. You know, like, I just feel like there are so many great parts for him. And now it's like, 
where are we putting Richard Gere in? Because he deserves like, he can do the thing, you know? And so I miss him maybe in more modern times, more recent movies that he could be in that I feel like he'd be a great fit. So all in all, I, I enjoyed the film. Like I said, anything, you know, once you kind of go back in time a bit, you're going to say, could we have cut some time here? Hell, even lately the movies are three hours. I'm like, really could have cut a half hour to an hour here, people. Why are these movies three hours, guys? Um, but it was a good film. And uh, yeah, Primal Fear, you know, if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. All right, Justin, what is your movie that you'd like to discuss? Maybe I should have went first because I am apparently losing my voice and coughing up a lung over here. But all right. So I was assigned Sleepers, which is, as Kayla said, one of her favorite movies. Also came out in 1996. Two hours and 27 minutes. Director was Barry Levinson. This was based on a book that is a bit controversial because the author of the book, Lorenzo Carcaterra if that's how you pronounce it, claims it's based on a true story, but there's been no evidence to substantiate that. So it's kind of been debunked since the release of the book in the movie. The budget was $44 million and it made a little over $165 million worldwide, so it did very well. Rotten Tomatoes score of 73, and it had a loaded cast. We had Robert De Niro, who played Father Bobby. We had Kevin Bacon, played the prison guard Noakes. We had Brad Pitt. We had Billy Crudup in his first movie ever. Just loaded cast. And a couple of uh, quick fun facts here. Brad Pitt did not like his performance in this movie. He said he was disappointed. He thought he was at a weird spot in his career where he had too much fame and didn't know how to handle it and thought he could have been better. So I thought that was kind of interesting because I did not uh, necessarily think he was bad in the movie. I thought he could have been better, but it's kind of interesting to see an actor reflect on their own performance like that. Like I said, debut film for Billy Crudup, and they had the code name Edmund was used in this movie to kind of identify when Michael needs to uh, contact another character, Shakes. And that name came from the main character of The Count of Monte Cristo, which is referenced quite a few times throughout the movie. All right, Justin, three, two, one. Four childhood friends in 1960s Hell's Kitchen are typical teenage boys who like to play harmless pranks on each other. Then a prank turned bad when somebody gets seriously injured. They get sentenced to 12 to 18 months in a juvenile facility, the Wilkinson Home for Boys, and immediately figure out the horrors that await them. They're physically, sexually, and emotionally abused by guards on their cell block, including Kevin Kevin Bacon's character, Noakes. Scared to tell anybody, they bottle it all up and take a 13-year time jump. Two of the kids are known criminals, John and Tommy. One is a newspaper writer, Shakes, and one is an assistant district attorney, Michael, who is played by Brad Pitt. John and Tommy see Noakes at a bar and shoot him dead. Michael reveals that he has been planning revenge on the guards since the day they got out and has volunteered to take the case so that he could throw it. He proceeds to work with Shakes and people from the neighborhood to get the remaining guards locked up and fix the case to save John and Tommy. Father Bobby, played by Robert De Niro, was a priest from the neighborhood that the kids could always rely on, so Shakes asked the priest to provide an alibi. Then for the first time, opens up about their time in Wilkinson home to Bobby and longtime friend Carol telling them every excruciating detail. The case is hanging on Father Bobby's willingness to perjure himself, but he shows up at the last minute and helps them out. They get revenge on all the guards, and Tommy and Johnny are set free just to die a few years later. The end. Not bad. It was only a minute and three seconds. Yeah, because I got caught up there in that one spot. Damn it. <laughs> not bad. Damn not it, bad. Kayla. That was good. That was good. All right. What'd you think of the sleepers, the movie? It was better than I thought. I just thought it was too long. 
we had a, uh, I was watching with my wife in two hour, about two and a half hour long movie. You're an hour and a half in before you really get to them as adults or in the courtroom, right? It's an hour of them as kids. And I'm like waiting, like, when's this, when are they going to get revenge on the guards? Cause that was the theme in the beginning. Like, Hey, uh, you stick up for people who your family with and friends with, and you get revenge later on. And it just, it took a real long time to get to that point. And frankly, a lot of it was a little tough to watch when they're in the juvenile facility, the Wilkinson home, the sexual abuse, the beatings, the having to eat food off of the floor, just hearing the cries at night. Like they did a very good job of giving you that level of like just despair and anxiety watching it because you feel for those boys. It was just real tough to kind of watch over and over because it's not like they quickly go through that. That's you know, good 30 minutes that they are in the home and you're kind of seeing they're getting brought down to the basement, forced to do sexual acts, getting beaten with the uh, the nightsticks. It it was a lot. It was an emotionally draining movie to watch, Kayla, which is why you love it. Honestly, like emotionally draining movies are my bread and butter. <laughs> so yeah, things all really kind of connect with my interests. Okay, you're right. I like sad and depressing movies. Um, I, this movie, like, I love coming of age movies. I do like I love a kid to teen, like figuring themselves out or whichever. I do love those. It does spend, like you said, like an hour just building these kind of like kids growing up in the city, like their friendship dynamic, like getting into mischief, causing trouble and how it all goes wrong. Be an accident that, you know, you're playing around and things can just be so horrible. And so I, I love moments like that. Even like uh, Bronx Tales, one of my favorite movies with Robert De Niro. Like I just like the, you know, the Brooklyn or the, you know, kid from the Bronx growing up, like trying to figure things out. And so I just, I like, I could listen to them talk in their accent, argue about comics on a rooftop, try to see like, it's so hot out. What, what are we going to do for a prank? Like, I do like that. So I could see how when you're trying to like get to the sauce, like what's the, crazy shit that's about to happen i could see how you'd be like all right move on to the next thing but i just love kids hanging out that's true yeah it was nice to kind of develop that relationship and how close they were which is needed for why everybody in the neighborhood because it's kind of like how tight-knit hell's kitchen is at that time like everybody sticks up for everybody and you don't screw anybody over or you're you're the one who ends up dead essentially and just having the shakes character be the one who's the liaison between the assistant district attorney, Michael and the neighborhood in order to get these two clearly guilty guys out of murder. They walked in, they shot him dead, both with guns, a ton of witnesses. And then it goes into, okay, let's get guys from the neighborhood to basically intimidate some of these witnesses to not testify. Okay. The ones that do testify, just badger them. They were drunk. They weren't looking clearly get their, uh, their stories thrown out as much as we can. And the last holdout was we need an alibi because they were there. So who is going to testify they're not there? Who is a reliable person to testify that isn't going to be questioned by the defense and or the prosecution, I mean? And they turned to Father Bobby. He's a, a priest who grew up in the area. He went to the Wilkinson home. And he's not somebody who's going to just give up everything he believes in to help out some kids, but he will do whatever he can to help them out. And once you have the Sheikh's character tell him everything they endured in their time at the Wilkinson home, 
that's clearly what switched it for him. Because in his mind, it's, okay, I'm going to perjure myself. I'm putting myself at risk. I'm putting my career at risk. But these kids went through hell for a year, year and a half. That is why, you know, some of these Tom, Tommy and John turned out the way they did because they've had to live with that. And they've never told anybody about what happened because they were embarrassed or they didn't think anybody would care. They didn't think anybody would believe them. And that, that the mental gymnastics you have to play to kind of get that out of your mind, it's, it, it can't be done and it can't be done easily. And clearly he, he really felt like they deserved a break in the situation and that these guards deserved what they had coming to them. And it was, uh, I think they played it a little quick on how they took down all the, the guards. I would have liked to see that planned out a little bit more, maybe, maybe torture Noakes a little bit, Kevin Bacon's character, because he was so easy to hate in this movie. And the other three guards, it's like, all right, we got him brought up on some uh, illegal shit. He did. We got this guy uh, was found out about this and was killed okay, and then we had a guy go on the stand and just basically tear apart him himself and his friend admitting to sexual abuse and everything on the stand. I thought that was pretty smart to handle it that way. But the other two, I wanted to see a little bit more about how they they got to them and got them taken down so easily, you know? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, like, revenge meets, honestly, a pretty brutal middle of the movie where you're introduced to these boys, these friends, who, you know, steal a hot dog truck and hurt someone and end up going to juvie and then are just, honestly, like, it, it, it's a short period in the film and the landscape, but you you get the total sense of how long these boys were abused, not just physically, but sexually as well. And, like, how Kevin Bacon is beyond just this monster but like to get so much pleasure from seeing them in so much pain and one of the friends end up dying so it's just it, it just seems to have no limits you start to go how how could these boys be okay leaving here you know from how much they endured it was just beyond so when when there's that scene with kevin bacon and the two of them and they're talking and he he at first plays like he has no clue get out of here and then he has that turn that little like even though I'm in a bad spot, I'm going to remind you how easy you were to hurt. And it's just the little kids in them at that moment, the little kids that are, that are speaking and doing things, you know? Yeah. And that's, he saw, you know, they were 14, 15 years old when they went into uh to juvie. So he saw some, some kids that were fragile, that were young, that were weak, that weren't strong enough to really push back or know how to push back properly and they saw every time they mentioned anything that they got beat or somebody else got beat. And the one time they kind of tried to assert a little bit of, of pressure on the guards is they had this, you know, this random like pickup football game, which they threw into the movie. And they got uh, one of the uh, the black kids to be on the team because he's somebody that everybody listened to. And they beat the guards and they were kind of started taunting and they hit the guards. And this is the one time they could kind of, you know, fight back. But obviously that's not going to go over well. And they all got beat into a bloody pulp. And then the black kid that they brought in to help win gets killed and they blame it on pneumonia. And it's just like, you, no matter what you do here, there were other guards. It wasn't just these four in that cell block. And they clearly turned the other way and let this kid die. And these other kids get beat because they were embarrassed about what happened. It's, 
it's tough that you don't see anybody else stick up for the kids except for that one scene early on when they're told to eat their food off the floor and the other guy comes in and says, you're eating into my shift, get out of here and tells the kids to get up, you're fine, go back to your rooms. Like that's the only time you see anybody stand up for them. And it, it's just tough to know like every day they're they're laying there in their rooms and it's, uh, are they going to knock on my door tonight? Are they going to come in here tonight? Like what's going to happen? I hear... I hear Tommy screaming down the hallway. He's he's being raped by four men, essentially. You see the the flashback scene when he's reliving everything later on as an adult of, you know, pray. You you freaking you care about God and everything. How about you pray for your mother and everything right now while we do all these heinous things to you? And it's just yeah, it was uh emotionally taxing for sure, Kayla. Uh, I definitely I definitely picked a doozy for you. I mean, what I also enjoy about this film is that it's having several conversations. It's talking about one of my favorite topics, like a crisis of faith, like these kids who grew up, you know, Italian Catholic, like go to church. They have a neighborhood priest, that you know, that obviously comes further in their lives as adults. And it's just like you pray, you, you know, you are thankful you do these things right you're going to heaven and then they experience some of the worst shit ever how do you come out of that and be like yep but i just continue doing the same thing i was doing before you just you just can't not without a lot of help and a lot of inner strength and so there's a topic of even that boy who, who gets killed it's like okay everyone's getting abused in this place but who dies you know what i mean like what what conversation are they having here you know what i mean like they survive and make it out but the black kid doesn't, you know, what are we saying there? Like who ultimately is, is, is getting the worst of the worst. Um, revenge, yes, courtroom, revenge, yeah. courtroom. Uh, you know, they, not only did they experience it, but they know each other did. And then they just, the self guilt, it, there's just so many conversations happening. And that's what I also like about it is just, just, I don't know. It's very real. It's very it's sad. Even if it wasn't real in terms of an event, maybe that did or didn't happen. It's very real in the terms of how they survive it and then how ultimately affects them as adults and not for the better. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the side characters were really good. We had Minnie Driver plays the longtime friend Carol in this movie. It seems weird that she's still dating one of these criminals later on, but whatever. We got uh, what is it? Fat a fat guy. They just kept calling him the guy who ran the little uh, corner shop there that everybody loved. Dustin Hoffman's in this movie. I don't even think I mentioned him. He plays the alcoholic uh, defense attorney for these guys. And I, I can't quite understand. Maybe I missed it on why they chose this guy who is a, a quack kind of, who basically goes up to them and is like, I shouldn't use this case. I'm not equipped for this. And you have, uh, you have uh, Brad Pitt's character gives him the questions and the answers and exactly what to say and who to call and what to do. He's fixing this case so you can't lose it. And Dustin Hoffman's character still almost blows it at the beginning of the, it's like, oh my God, dude, you stop flipping through these papers. All you have to do is memorize a few questions. He He's handing it to you on a silver platter and it still takes him kind of the process of the trial to get the confidence, I guess, of himself as a lawyer because it's framed that he used to be good and kind of fell off the wagon and hasn't been the same since, but I'm still not convinced that a, at this time would be a 27 year old. Michael is an assistant district attorney at that age and is able to pick the cases he wants. And also if he is performing that bad, is he not yanked off of the, uh, 
off of that case because he was atrocious, intentionally so, but there's got to be other people there that are watching like, uh, dude, you're not equipped to be handling this case. We need to take you out of here. No follow-up questions? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I could see maybe one of his trauma responses was like being super manipulative. So I could see him using that as like this tool to kind of get ahead. You know what I mean? Like they had to learn so many things just to make it out. I mean, some joined the Irish mafia, like, you know, there's, they're, they're just trying to get ahead and survive day to day. And so I could see him like be kind of conning his way, kind of like he conned his way to these cases and to get the outlook he wanted. It's kind of funny because in primal fear, we're, you know, we don't know that we want him to be guilty until the end. And these guys were just like, I know they killed, but like, yeah, keep going. Like, you know, I wish you would have killed them all. Like you're kind of rooting for the people on defense. And so that's an interesting dynamic there. And you know what? It's okay that Matt Damon didn't get this role because he got to see about a girl another time and get mini driver. So it all worked out, you know, had to say it. So true. <laughs> Good time for mini driver, huh? This 96, 97 range. For her. I love mini driver. So I've seen probably every one of her films circle friends, underrated film. Um, yeah. So it, just good. Just sad, but incredibly sad. Like you said, carve out some time to just be in the dark, literally emotionally. Uh, yeah. hundred percent. And, and I do love the overarching kind of the main theme here of, of friendship and sticking up for, for those that you have a connection to. And that's just straight up in the end. It's Michael giving up his law career, giving up everything he's kind of worked since he got out for and it's just to get revenge and also protect his friends even though they die a couple of years later which is thrown in at the very end it's like it's the last time we saw each other it was a fun time oh and then they got murdered a couple of years later well that sucks but it also tracks based on how they were portraying those uh, adult versions of the characters there so yeah it wasn't like they were going to kind of get their just self-justice and then kind of like turn towards the light Unfortunately, they were just on a path that was just like a self-sabotage. And it was pretty brutal. It was like crime scene photos of them like in blood, just like down in like bathrooms. Not great. Um, yeah. And, that, you know, more you describe this film, the more I'm like, yeah, this, this film was pretty bleak after as soon as they hit the courtroom. So, yeah. Hmm. I think it need it could have cut out, I think, 20 minutes or so when they were when they were younger and it could have been a little bit more manageable. And also the actor who played Shakes, who is kind, he's the narrator and, and kind of the main character here. Jason Patrick as adult Shakes needed a better actor there. He just didn't do it for me. I, I wasn't buying him entirely. I, he took me out of it a little bit. I need somebody else that can go up with Brad Pitt, with Robert De Niro, with Minnie Driver. And he just seemed like he was outplayed in every scene he was in with a better actor. I think that's kind of the struggle of having one really good, trying to get really good child actors, trying to get their kind of comparable adults, which makes current show Yellow Jacket so phenomenal on how they're able to do that. Um, but obviously it's, it's hard to do. And, you know, it's not completely star studded. You have some people that you're like, whatever happened to that person, you know? So we can't win them all, you know, we just can't. Why don't we, unless you have anything else to say about sleepers, why don't we give our VHS ratings for Primal Fear and sleepers? What do you got for Primal Fear? I'm going to give Primal Fear a three. 
a three. It, it, your shocked face is is horrified by that, and here's why. That's a five out of six VHS tapes, Kayla. Primal Fear, well, five out who, of six. Who's giving the ratings here? It's me. So I, I'm i going to give it a three out of six. It, it meet me midway. Would I watch this again? No. Would I watch the final scene again? Sure. I, I've seen it before. I'll definitely see it again. It was great. But that that's kind of it for me. So great film, though. It was good. All right, so sleepers. I'm between a three and a four, honestly, and um, I think it was a little too long for me, and I'm not gonna watch this again. It's just too tough, uh, so I'm gonna give it a three out of six. But you literally give the same explanation for your three, but when I do it, it's bad. Got it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, because primal fear is better than. Sleepers. Oh, okay. All right. We're gonna have that argument. I disagree, but we yeah, we we don't have time for that. Okay. Um, what would you give sleepers, Kayla? Five out of six. Easy. Easy. Okay. So we literally are just flip flop. <laughs> All right. Got it. We love the movies we assign each other. What can we say? There's always a reason. So, um, True. court courtroom movies. I think I'm going to see some more. There were a couple on the list that I was like, you know, I've always been meaning to watch. Like you said, my cousin Vinny is one of the films I haven't seen. So, um, that's going to be on my list. So it's going to be a return to the courtroom. I think for me, maybe this weekend. Yeah, because we also uh, we don't watch enough movies or TV yet, Kayla. So let's watch some uh, 1980s classics and early 1990s ones. I always got to try to fit it in when I can, you know. Do you really need eight hours of sleep? No, I've learned. Um, that being said, let's go ahead and get to our Swarly of the Week. So we're going to have a change on our Swarly of the Week because holy hell do we need to talk about the last episode of Succession. We can certainly call out a Swarly of the episode. I think you already know who we're going to say, so I will turn it to you. But Succession, last episode was wild. I'm going to be dying until we can watch again on Sunday at 9. So go ahead. Who's the Swarly of the episode and what are we talking about? I mean, in the perfect definition of a Swarly it's got to be Tom Wamsgans. He tied everything, his entire future to Logan because Logan's never been fucked. But you know what he has been? Dead. So there it is. He died. All of Tom's hopes and dreams probably out the window with that. He is terrified. He doesn't know what to do, where to go. He's stuck in the middle now. He doesn't have his protector. Just real bad timing for Tom. And I... I yeah, we could talk about this episode for probably an hour or two, so we'll try to keep it fairly quick. But the way they shot this of he in obviously spoilers, I already said Logan died. But if you haven't heard it by now, then you don't care about the show. So who cares? But the way they kill him off on he is on a jet going someplace to meet with Matson. The kids are going to a wedding they're not together. They're separated. It gave it not the private jet in the big lavish wedding, but it gave it such more of a realistic feel of you can't plan for these things. Sometimes they just happen and you're not with your, uh, the person you care about when they die, you need to have a phone put up to their ear just to try to get some last words out. You don't know if they're breathing. It's not as clean as a lot of times movies and TV make it. So the fact they made it messy and different than every other succession episode where you are just with the the kids majority of the time following them around and their sense of anxiety and and fear and confusion on how to feel cuz they didn't weren't big fans of their dad but they still loved him it was their father it, i thought it was just done so well kayla 
It was so good. I I was worried I was in the danger zone because it's just so hard for me in general talking about death, watching death. So lately, just in movies and stuff, it's it's, it's just a little more tender for me. And so I hated Logan. I mean, Logan's a terrible person. I, I We were just debating a couple weeks ago whether he even loved his children. I mean, truly a monster. And yet I was as shaken as the other Roy children, uh, minus Connor, who was just like, well... He never loved me. He never liked me anyways. Uh, it was his wedding that his dad died. You know, typical weddings in the HBO in succession. I just, I was, okay, I will say like for a good 20 minutes, I was like, I could see Logan playing them. Like I could totally see Logan saying that he died or was sick. And meanwhile, he's on the plane going there to talk to Madison. Like I totally in my head was like, Cause that's how capable, which shows how bad of a person he is that he could have told his kid he was dying and maybe it wouldn't be true. But the fact that they didn't show Logan having his death scene, you just see pieces of him on the floor, like a leg or an arm or them, you know, giving chest compressions. You see just tender Tom, my, my precious swirly Tom, even though he's in such bad relationships with them and especially Shiv, like, putting the phone in the ear, wanting them to have whatever moment they could, even if Tom, you know, knew at the moment he put the first, he put, um, uh, Romans, you know, was the first kid to try to talk to Logan. He knew at that point he wasn't alive and he still tried to give him that moment. And I just appreciate that. in Tom, he didn't have, Tom is, Tom is, is a good person a little bit, you know, he's not the best person, but there's some good in him. He's kind of the best of, of who we're dealing with he here, is. though. And did you notice that he clearly tried to call Shiv multiple times and she kept ignoring him? And he finally gets through to, to Roman and Kendall and they take a while. They eventually get Shiv and they completely forget about Connor on his wedding, that it's also his father. It's just the way they played that whole thing out. And then if you watch the after the episode kind of breakdown thing, they talked about how they shot a lot of those sequences like separately. And then at one point they were like, we're going to shoot this all as one 27 minute scene, right? With the whole kind of middle part where they're walking around trying to figure out what to do and they use film. So they had to like reload as they were going. And they said that one shot essentially was used for majority of those, those scenes. So it's just, the the acting in this the the physical acting on how what they're doing with their hands how they're you know Roman always is kind of slumping or kind of going turning into a kid again when when bad things happen to him he has the awkward interaction with Jerry where he's looking for comfort but he also kind of fired her earlier and now without Logan there the dynamics change entirely you know you have Frank you have Carl you have Carolina you have um, Jerry they don't need to pander to the kids in order to not piss off Logan. Right. So they can, they're going for their, themselves at this point. And it's going to be a power struggle between them and the kids. From what we've seen, it seems like the kids are going to try to at least stay united for a minute. Kendall tries to, it may seem callous, but it's also needed in this situation when he says, no matter what we do right now, Forever, this is going to be what we did the day our dad died. We need to think about this. How is it going to look? What is going to happen to the company? What is going to happen to us? What is going to happen to the family? We can't tell them, circle the plane and wait until you land and just have our, our father's dead body up in the air for no reason. So he kind of shuts that down and he takes a little bit of a leadership role here 
which is needed out of the siblings. And they write their, uh, they uh, do the statement themselves because clearly you had everybody else trying to be like, well, we were with Logan. We were with him when he died. So really we're his trusted advisors. So we should not be fired. We should be at the top of the heap. And the kids are like, we met with him yesterday. We're not estranged. So don't say that. And all these little things you don't want to have to worry about when you're dealing with the death of a parent, just these intricacies in such a delicate situation, you you wouldn't even consider unless you're put in that spot, right? Like, oh, who needs to sign the statement? I, I don't know. Who cares? Who needs to say it? Who Can you say this word? Can you say that word? There's so much that they're trying to juggle. It's, uh, you know, obviously everybody hopes they don't have to go through something like that, but I think For the sure. show portrayed it very well. You know, we start the show with Logan possibly dying. And at that point you have no stakes. You don't even know who Logan is. So you have the least investment in will he live or will he not as you're introduced to the kid. So, you know, Logan had to get his last fuck you by making Roman ruin his relationship with Jerry as he died. So uh, that's great. Uh, poor Roman. He's completely broken. I just loved, I mean, it was a true portrayal of grief. How many times do they joke about him dying, him being sick, him being unfit? The, the entire show. But when it comes to someone actually dying, your feelings, your emotions, what you think above about how he wasn't a good father, he wasn't a good person, completely go away. And it's it's complete heart. It's, it's complete devastation at someone that you love, you care about. Even sometimes it's grief of just someone that was in your lo- your life and, and is no longer and you're missing that component. So I just thought, I mean, we joke about, you know, them getting every Emmy. It's so hard to see what they're going against at this point because this episode alone was just complete rock star. And I just can't. And this was episode three. Are you kidding me? Let's go. Can't wait. I love the bold move of making the death early in the season. I figured it wouldn't be the last thing, right? Because you have to see who actually succeeds. But I was thinking more of like episode six, seven range. Episode three and out of nowhere where he's on the phone with Roman. Roman's last words are leaving a voicemail calling him, you know, a cunt. So that's aggressive, Roman. I'm sorry. And uh, he's told to fire Jerry, which is... Just another form, like you said, of Logan exerting his dominance over Roman and making him do the one thing he really knows he doesn't want to have to do here. Just very well played. And I love how the similarities were to the first couple episodes of season one. When he's on, he's he's um, he's sick and he's with the whole family, right? It's the parallels, but the differences of... He gets sick when he's with all the kids. They're on a helicopter together. They're with him in the hospital trying to figure out what to do. Who's going to take over? What are we going to say? And they're working together as a cohesive unit. And here it's almost like, what if he died in that situation? How much more does that fracture these relationships? And how does everybody kind of turn into their own self-interest? And having them separated from the, uh, the main corporate team and the kids really got you trying to figure out how they're jockeying for position. And, and I'm very intrigued to see how they, uh, they close out this season. Cause it's I'm great. Stuff. The kids can kind of stay together, but who knows, who knows? We might just have the, their tender, very short, awkward hugs and handholding as the only times we're going to get that. But to end on our swirly, you know, Tom, he's kind of fucked. I don't see shifts throwing him much mercy and hopefully they'll just appreciate that. He could have been a real dick to him at a moment that they had, seconds minutes maybe to say something to logan and he didn't so hopefully they appreciate that so we'll see well even another thing on the tom front is 
Logan kept saying or recently that he was going to fire Sid. So Tom would be taking over all of ATN, but he hasn't done that yet that we're aware of. So he still has somebody kind of with him at ATN that hasn't been fired more competition. And the very end of the episode, it's kind of Shiv asking for Tom to ride back with her. Like she needs some form of comfort there. And he, he still loves Shiv, I believe, and is trying to give that to her. You have Roman going to see the body and you have Kendall left alone wondering what's going to happen here. So they all separated at the end of the episode, which I think was very intentional on how this is going to be portrayed going forward. Cause I can see Roman and Shiv just falling apart mentally. And I'm not, I can't really gauge where they're going to go, which is why I love this show. Cause really anything can happen at this point. Oh yeah. And it's going to happen. They gave us a little special season long tease, I guess of moments that I think are going to be spread across. And I can't wait. Don't count anyone out. Um, or this just completely blows up and Madison just takes over. We'll have to see. So I can't wait. Love succession. And of course we'll be talking about it more. How about we go ahead and head to our friendship question of the week. What do you got, Justin? All right. So we're in a group text uh, chain here today, Kayla. And Swarly actually is the one who sends out this question. So let's bring it up on the pod and have a good old discussion. Would you rather have the ability to effortlessly run a hundred miles per hour or fly 10 miles per hour, Kayla? So as you know, I did not participate in this group chat one because I was really busy at work today. Two, if something makes my brain hurt trying to decide, it's just hard for it's hard for me to pick. But if you're putting me on the spot, I gotta pick. My first inclination was fly because flying sounds cool and you could go over water. You know what I mean? You can't. I, unfortunately, 100 miles per hour is not fast enough to walk in water. I don't think physics. I don't know. But so I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. It's fast, but not like crazy travel teleporting fast. So we'll see. But then I thought 10 miles an hour. Uh, that's pretty slow. Like maybe hovering and flying right above is great, but like traveling. Good God. I better carve out like a month to go somewhere. So I think I would pick running. I think running would be a more like normal everyday use. Like you're playing volleyball to hang out. You're, you know, doing a cry. You can do so many things just run away really fast. So I think it's more useful overall. Yeah. I think I landed in agreement with you. I had follow-up questions as I do which is, do I burn uh, the equivalent amount of calories for running 100 miles per hour? Like the that flash. Makes my workout routine makes my workout routine very easy, right? I just go for a run around the block. I'm golden for like the week. You know what I'm saying? But we established that it's no. You would just burn the amount of calories that you are exerting heart rate-wise there. And since it's phrased as effortlessly run, it'd be the equivalent to you like having an easy jog. So you're not burning that many calories. Also, you're not allowed to compete in sporting events. So I couldn't just become the greatest track star that's ever existed, but it always came back down to the 10 mile an hour limit. That is too slow for me. It'd be nice to go over bodies of water and everything, but I am not a patient person. So me just being like, all right, 10 miles per hour, I can only go 10 miles in an hour. Think about that. I couldn't even fly to work. It'd take me too long to get to work. You know, it'd take me an hour to get to work. Something just occurred to me. If you're a careful person like I am in most aspects of my life slash everything, it there's a variety of safety that comes with flying. Think about it. Your plane goes down, get out the window, you're good. You fall over, look at the Grand Canyon's beauty, 
you're good. I mean, there are a few scenarios that like getting to fly away off the ground, an earthquake, your state suddenly flies away from global warming. There is some value to to being able to distance yourself from the ground. So I, I see the value of flying maybe not so much as a travel mechanism, but as like an added safety mechanism for everyday life. Just throw it out there. You throwing that out there also made me think about uh, A-Train from The Boys, the TV show. If you're effortlessly, effortlessly running 100 miles an hour, do you also have to be cognizant and weave in and out of people as you're running that fast? You could kill a lot of girlfriends that way. So that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, are you just completely disembodying people if you, you hit them? Good point. True. That would not be ideal. Still 10 miles an hour, though. If it was yeah, like yeah. 25 miles an hour, it's like, all right, I, I could work with that. But 10... I think this is why it's a great question. Could you imagine a race between the people who pick flying and the people who pick running and you're just like, see ya all the way with the runners and the flyers are just like, do, 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 you know, halfway. That's great. So good question, Swarley. But if you're flying at a certain altitude, uh, maybe you have to work, look out for birds, but you, you can just, uh, you could be working up there. Yeah. Just hanging out. You could be watching TV while you're flying. What's the reception? I guess I don't know the dynamic of of air. Yeah, you do know? you have Wi-Fi in the How air? Does, where deal? does Wi-Fi end? I don't really understand what Wi-Fi is, so I don't know. Maybe running might be the the easier thing. So that's a good question. Um, I think that wraps it up for our courtroom dramas that we discussed today. I'll pick my movie another time when we're in person, so we'll get that done. And we have a very very special episode we're recording next week. A hundred episodes. Can you believe it, Justin? We did it. A hundred. Wild. One hundred episodes. And also, if you haven't, check out our TikTok because I did the first of my TikTok dances and thoroughly embarrassed myself. So if you want to have a good old laugh at me, I had a coworker today say, hey, I saw your little dance there. It's pretty funny. It's like, oh, thanks. I appreciate that people are laughing and my own my, workers, uh, misfortune. my own coworkers were also complimenting you. So it's been really fun. He has two more to go. Can't wait. Laugh out loud. Um, and yeah, so we got a lot of fun, cool things coming next week. So I'm excited. Kayla just You're excited. LOL'd in real life. She I just did. said laugh out loud. And I didn't laugh afterwards, which our friend Sam would appreciate. Um, so yeah, a lot of things coming up. Can't wait to celebrate our hundredth episode and we'll see you next week. Well, that's it for this episode of Wrong Opinions Only. Please follow us on Instagram at Wrong Opinions Only and on Twitter at Wrong Opinions JK, where we'll be dropping some clues and hints to upcoming episodes. Until then, JK out.